Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm Research Director of ECFR and I am uh, engaged in a coup against Mark Leonard's hosting of this podcast over the next few weeks. And this week's podcast will be all about ECFR's new public opinion poll and a report which was published this week, which we're calling Living in a la carte world, what policymakers should learn from global public opinion. To discuss this with me, I have the report's three authors, Timothy Gartnash, Ivan Krastev, and oddly, uh, none other than Mark Leonard, who is back from sabbatical after two days. Tim is the professor of European studies at the University of Oxford and author of numerous best-selling books and one of today's most insightful commentators on European history and politics. Ivan chairs the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, is a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, Austria, and most importantly, a board member of ECFR. And Mark is director of ECFR, cum Henry A. Kissinger Chair in Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress. Mark, welcome to your own podcast. Yvonne and Tim, welcome to my podcast. Thank you all for joining me. So uh, to get us started, the last big polling project that you did uh, culminated in a report that came out last February, United West Divided from the Rest, in which the three of you argued that Western views toward the war in Ukraine and toward global order diverge sharply from those in other places. Uh, and I guess this report is a follow-up. So I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through the key findings of the new report and what was different about uh, the groups of countries that you polled uh, this time. And I guess mostly focusing on what is the main argument that you're making in this report. Uh, maybe we can start with uh, Tim. When we say living in an a la carte world, what we find reinforces what we found last time. And we've actually added five non-Western countries to the ones um, we did before, including South Africa, Brazil, Indonesia, South Korea. And what we find is, for starters, that the West retains tremendous soft power. If you ask people, where would you like to live if not in your own country? Um, overwhelmingly, they say in a member state of the European Union or the US. Apparently, they don't want to live in Britain anymore. Um, <laughs> they say that uh, on human rights, they would rather align with the West. They say that on control of the internet, they would rather align with the West. They say that Russia's current political values are not ones that belong to Europe. Um, they like the idea of having their security with Europe. If forced to choose, they would choose an American bloc rather than a Chinese bloc. So this all sounds tremendously encouraging for the West. But the deeper finding, Jeremy, and this is, I think, amongst the most interesting, is that actually they would prefer not to choose and think they can get away with not choosing. They actually think that they can go on having a deep economic relationship with China, a strong security relationship with the United States, and enjoying everything that Europe has to offer. So that, I think, is, is, is at least one of the biggest challenges out of this really extraordinary um, survey, um, and a challenge particularly to Europe. 
I could go on about other aspects, but I think I'll, I'll hand over to Mark and Ivan to pick up some other threads. Thanks. And uh, uh, Mark, I want to pick up on this point about not having to choose because, I mean, I certainly am with the public on this. I hate choosing about anything, but particularly between America and China. But um, the question really is, are they going to be able to not choose? And so is this a realistic approach that they have? I would assume that during the Cold War, people also didn't want to choose, but in the end, they did. Yeah, I mean, I think what was very striking is that the vast majority of people everywhere, even in Europe, didn't think they were going to have to choose. And I, I think that based on, on where we're at at the moment, they, they have a point. I think there is a big difference between the world that we're in now and that at the beginning of the Cold War, because at that time, the Soviet Union and the United States were made up the sort of overwhelming uh, part of the, the global economy. Um, they were you know, responsible for the vast majority of military spending. They were incredibly uh, powerful ideological centers, which um, had political parties in every country in the world adopting their, their ideologies. And they also benefited from the fact that the world had been smashed up and, and wasn't very integrated. So people actually had to make a choice about whether they traded with the Soviet Union or with uh, the, the United States of America. And none of those three things uh, apply to the same extent. There's a much more polycentric global economy now. Uh, you know, the US and China are pretty important, but there are all sorts of other uh, centers uh, in this. And obviously, the EU is, is a very important part of this. And the way that the EU goes, I think, will be quite important. But there are other countries like India and Brazil and lots of African countries. So if we go forward 10, 20, 30 years, you know, most of the global population and a large chunk of the global economy is not going to be, uh, you know, China and America. Um, the same uh, thing's true of, of, of the kind of ideologies of these countries. You know, uh, there is this battle of soft power, um, and we found that, that that a lot of the soft power uh, that we have of the U.S. is is quite attractive in in different places, but you know I think we're in a, a very different sort of uh, world where those kind of great modernity projects, which were so dominating um, at, after the Second World War, don't have the same credibility and reach uh, that they had at, at the moment. You don't have you know communist parties in every single state trying to bring about a Maoist revolution in the way that you had for the, for the Soviet Union during the Cold War, but equally. The, the US, a lot of the benefits that it had have now been sort of unpicked. So people think they can have um, some of the technologies and, and, and other bits, but they see it as a sort of a la carte package, uh, as an a la carte menu rather than the kind of single package. But the, the most important thing is we now live in a reality of, of, of hyper interdependence where people just have loads of different choices. And it's not just a choice between China and America. You can play those two countries off against each other. People are doing that um, with great aplomb. If you look at Saudi Arabia and Israel, they've been doing that very effectively. But also, um, you know, there are other countries, there are other ways of, of getting things. So it's quite hard for the US and China to, to actually force people to, to choose even if they want to. And they are, as our survey shows, going to be going against the grain of public opinion in, in different places. Um, so I think, you know, it doesn't mean they're not going to try, but I think it's it's a much harder ask from Washington and Beijing than it was for, for Moscow and, and Washington in the, the years after the Second World War. Uh, those were the days, yeah. So 
basically what, what, we're, what we're establishing is that it's not only a world where people want to choose, it's a world where people can choose. Ivan, I'm wondering if you can, if you can sort of follow up on that and, and, and you know, discuss any of the findings that you want from the report. But I'd be particularly interested in, in hearing from you what it is about what, if anything, in the public opinion polls surprised you. What is, what is it that you learned that you, that you didn't know or you didn't think would be true? Uh, it's a great question. I, I want to continue because uh, why basically they don't believe that uh, they had to choose? First, because self-confidence. You see, some of these countries are really self-confident. This is not the country just being born after the World War II. They have the kind of sense of their power, and for them, the sky is the limit. Of course, the sky is quite polluted, uh, but this is, uh, this is the limit. And secondly, what in my view is very important, this is not the countries that are looking for a model. Americans and Soviets presented a model. These countries, both United States and China, are perceived as allies. They have their strengths and weaknesses. They are much more partners. But I don't see any kind of enthusiasm for anybody to adopt full-scale the, the model of any other country. And here the very definition of sovereignty now is to have an options. Anybody who is going to press these countries too much to take sides risks that they're going to turn against him because for them this is perceived as violating their sovereignty. This kind of definition of sovereignty as having options, in my view, is critically important because when you said what surprised me, listen, Indians, if you go on the uh, result of the public opinions, are not particularly enthusiastic about China. You can see it on different type of positioning. But when it comes to economic power of China, they feel quite confident that they want basically China being economically present in their country, exactly because they do believe that nevertheless that they have security concerns, nevertheless that basically they don't feel it uh, uh, enthusiastic about China. Having an option is very important. And this is also explains part of their positive view on Russia, which you can see on many things. For them, Russia is a guarantee that they are not going to belong to a certain bloc. But this is not the non-alignment movement from yesterday. This is not the countries that simply go together. Simply, it means that for all of them, having options, having choices, being able to have ad hoc coalitions. So what has changed in my view and which comes interestingly from the result is that at least from the point of public opinion, uh, the meaning of alliances has changed. During the Cold War, alliances was like a Catholic marriage. You fall in and basically you cannot divorce without the permission of the Pope. And now basically it's kind of a much more light partnerships in which you cannot expect that your allies are going to support you on everything. Just the opposite from this point of view, Turkey is uh, very interesting when you see where they stand on different issues. Yes, you aligned on something basically, but not on many other things. And this is perceived as natural. And the other things that I can imagine we're going to discuss even more is uh, to what extent basically uh, the views on the uh, Russia's war in Ukraine uh, has uh, much more been consolidated in the non-Western world. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to give the major parameters of this because I'm sure that both Tim and Mark are going to be interested. But we are basically discovering the world where, with the exception of South Korea, which behaves as a classical Cold War type of an ally, all other countries believe first that the most important is the war to stop as soon as possible, regardless of uh, the fact that Ukraine probably can lose territories. Secondly, uh, the plurality or even the majority in some of the countries uh, believe that uh, in five years period, Russia is going to prevail. Only Europeans and Americans and not in all European countries basically are much more optimistic about what Ukraine 
can uh, uh, can achieve. And certainly what is very important, uh, most of these people believe that United States is in a war with Russia. The people who strongly don't believe this are the Americans. 70% of the Americans basically said, no, no, we are not. And then when you go and ask others, they're totally convinced that they're in a war. Uh, and in my view, this is, this is extremely important because particularly in the context of uh, the Israeli-Hamas conflict now and kind of a new uh, uh, kind of a new moment also for public opinions in many of the non-Western countries, it's really important to discuss what is the impact of all this on Ukraine, on the Ukrainian strategies, on the European strategy on the Ukraine, on the American strategy on Ukraine. And in the beginning of the war, everybody was saying that we do not have a theory of victory. I do believe that there is something much more profound. We do not have a theory of defeat. And not defeat of Ukraine, but basically defeat of Europe and the United States, what it means. Okay. Wow, that leads to a lot of questions, um, particularly why the Americans are always the last ones to find out they're at war. But I, I, maybe I could ask either Tim or Mark to follow up on the Ukraine point that, that Ivan made. Uh, is the, are these findings bad news for the war in Ukraine? Uh, or is, does it imply that the West isn't going to have the kind of endurance it needs to, to prevail in that long struggle? Could, could I just quickly, Jim, add a couple of things to what Mark and Ivan said and then go to that point? I mean, first of all, I think there's a real difference between collective choices where countries are saying we don't want to take the Western model and individual choices where a lot of individuals are saying, but I'd love to go and live there. So it's the old Ivan's old line about it's easier to change countries and change your country. Um, secondly, I think a late 19th century European, or indeed anyone who plays the board game diplomacy, would take a look at this world and recognize it. Yeah, it's the world we know. It's a world of great powers pursuing their interests, um, allying with one person, one power for one thing, another power for another. But it's the world that we thought we were eliminating in the 1990s. Well, we, we thought the world was heading towards late 20th century Europe. In fact, it's more like late 19th century Europe, I would say. I mean, the lesson we drew last time, which I think is to be drawn even more strongly from this one, is the West has to avoid all bipolar framings. It just doesn't work. Joe Biden's community of democracies versus autocracies. And I say that as someone who advocated that 20 years ago in a book called Free World. Now, to Ukraine, I mean, the, the finding is even stronger than last time, that most of the rest of the world wants, wants just to get to quote-unquote peace, whatever sacrifice of territory that involves. And what is new thinks in quite a clear majority that Russia is likely to win. But um, so that's bad news for, for Ukraine. But, Jeremy, there's a really interesting correlation which we tease out, because another question we ask is, um, do you think the EU is likely to collapse within the next 20 years? And quite shocking majorities or pluralities answer that with yes, 67% in China. 62% in Saudi Arabia, 54% in Russia, perhaps unsurprising, more than 40% in Turkey and India, more than a third of Americans. And then you do the correlation, and what you find is that those who think Russia is likely to win the war in Ukraine correlate quite closely with those who think the EU is likely to collapse within the next 20 years. 
for me, and I'd love to hear Mark and Ivan on this, but for me, the clear conclusion from that is that Europe's credibility is at stake in the war in Ukraine. And therefore, actually, since U.S. support for Ukraine is clearly declining, um, even before the Israel-Hamas war, but now even more, and, and clearly, as, as General Zaluzhny has just said very clearly, um, they're making very slow progress militarily. Unless Europe does more to help Ukraine towards something that might plausibly be called victory, it will not only be a defeat for Ukraine, uh, it would also be uh, a blow to the EU's credibility. Mark, would you accept that, that the EU's credibility is at stake in Ukraine? Well, I, th- I think it is, but I think that actually, for me, one of the things which came out of the poll actually is the, the fact that people tend to distinguish quite strongly between the, the sort of attractiveness of different things on the menu in different parts of the world from the idea of these as being models or political projects. And there's no contradiction, I think, in most people's minds between saying, yeah, Europe's got great human rights, I'd love to move to Europe, and thinking that the EU is going to collapse. <laughs> and uh, so we kind of talk a bit about how Europe is, is now seen more as a kind of destination than a, than a kind of destiny. And that is the big shock, I think, to, to a lot of Europeans looking at the poll. Um, but it's also a shock to the Americans because, you know, you could say that American credibility is on the line. But I think, it might, you know, definitely true that American military credibility, something which has been tested in recent years, Europe's military credibility, um, you know, <laughs> was going from a lower base. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I'm not sure that, that we can underperform that the expectations given that they were so low of, of Europe's military credibility. But um, it's interesting how this attraction to, to European values, to what Europe's saying, doesn't lead people to see the Ukraine war in the same way that we do. That's why it's so striking that so many people both want the war to end as quickly as possible, think Russia's going to win. And that's then mirrored on the US side by the fact that a lot of people who like the US, who are very attracted by the US, would nevertheless also want to be neutral if there was a war between China and the US over Taiwan. And that's true even of Europeans that are utterly dependent on the US for security, as the Ukraine war has, has sort of shown. And I think that's the, the, the kind of essence of this a la carte world, that you like certain bits and, uh, of, of different places, um, but your credibility is not fungible. So your credibility as a military actor can be tested in a military space. But just because you're very credible as a military player doesn't mean that anyone's going to support you, even if you get in a war with anybody else. Um, and and there's no read across, I think, well, not as great a read across as we'd have thought from people valuing the kind of human rights stance that your country's taken to actually um, seeing your analysis about of, of human rights as a kind of determining factor in, in other uh, conflicts. Um, and that's when... It's an ungrateful world, isn't it? Well, I think it's it's a world where things, you know, that's, that is the essence of the a la carte things. Things are being kind of broken down and disaggregated and people are making micro choices um, for, for their own sort of individual reasons. And it's the choice... Like a fancy way of saying ungrateful, but I take your point. But the choice, what's interesting for us, which came out from a lot of questions, is, is as Ivan said earlier, it's the idea of choice, which is most important. Because it, it's not, 
it's not a world of kind of autarky where people want to be on their own. We asked this very interesting question where we asked people whether they thought that that um, good leadership was about being independent or being able to cooperate and build international coalitions. And actually, the most people in most countries, apart from Russia, go for cooperation as the kind of ultimate essence. So it's not that people want to be alone. They just don't want to be forced to have to choose and to have uh, choices taken away from them. Uh, so it's quite a subtle world that we're in, I think. So maybe I can ask a question that gets at that a little bit. Because I, I guess, you know, when I think when a lot of people read these polls, they sort of think, gee, I mean, do people really care about these things? Do they really, do they really have what, what the pollsters would call an intensity of preferences on this stuff? And we're reading quite a lot into these polls. So I'm, I'm wondering from your guys' perspective, and this is kind of a methodological um, question, how do we know that we're really getting answers that matter on these things? Or are these things that be, are being led by elites? Or are these things that people really have opinions on. You know, we, there was a the Guardian had this uh, article a few months ago about uh, an opinion poll that asked people about COVID denial, about COVID denial conspiracy theory. And 54% of the people said that, uh, you know, they thought it might be true. And then they went and asked a follow-up question, had you ever heard of this before the opinion poll? And only 6% had. Um, so in fact, the opinion poll had formed the opinion. So, I mean, I think that this is a struggle that all opinion poll work has. So I'd just really be interested in your guys' perspective on, on how we deal with that in papers like this, particularly this one. For me, for me, this is a very important question because when you ask people in places like China or India or Saudi Arabia, is European Union is going to collapse? Of course, many of them don't know what is European Union. And this is a reality that we know. But what I do believe we are measuring is not opinions, but moods. And public moods matter. And it was very clear, uh, basically, after uh, Hamas uh, attack on October 7, to see to what extent the mood can become a major source of political decisions. This is not that people have any idea how the peace in the Middle East is going to be. But not knowing does not mean that you don't have an opinion. And I do believe this is quite important, and this is capturing the mood of these societies. Many of the questions that we're asking them, these people are never going to ask themselves. Probably in a different environment, they're going to give a different answers. But the idea that the choice and the fact that they're on their own and that they should not be allowed to be pushed in a bipolar world, this type of a mood is something valid, particularly because it comes from pole to pole. Uh, to be honest, everybody who has been doing pollings knows that one poll does not mean anything. The changes and the lack of changes is what really matters. And secondly, this in my view also is important because when people try to orient themselves in a kind of confused world in the way we are talking about, uh, elites also becoming moody. And Moody's are kind of very much as infectious as every uh, epidemics. And I do believe this is, this is quite important. And going back to the Ukrainian issue and victory and uh, defeat story, which for me is very important. Listen, when people say that Russia is going to prevail, what they're saying? And they're saying something that from their point is quite obvious. Russia is a much bigger country. He has more people. And probably Ukraine is not going to be able to achieve what President Zelensky said, we're going to regain all territories. 
Uh, but then it's very important for Europeans to decide for us what is defeat, what is victory, what is important. So probably from European point of view, integration of Ukraine can import came to be much more important than simply any type of a piece of territory. I'm saying this because from time to time, the way we're defining what is victory or defeat uh, can turn very much against us. And this is particularly in the world in which credibility is something that I agree both with uh, Tim and Mark. People have the feeling that the West is still the best kind of a place to live. And if you want your lifestyle, you much more go for the West. Uh, but this is not the world that basically people believe is going to be governed by the West. And also even people who want to emigrate to the West are not going to put all their efforts to make their societies look like the Western societies. But just a little caveat on what Ivan just said on Ukraine, because, you know, your definition of victory can't be totally at odds with that in the country concerned. So that, you know, you can talk to people in West European capitals who say, well, actually, you know, to get EU and NATO membership for four-fifths of your country, that's an amazing deal for Ukraine. That's a view, you know, one hears privately. But it's absolutely not the view in Ukraine. In Ukraine itself, that would be viewed as a great defeat. And that's not just a passing mood. So I think, you know, there has to be some congruence between definition of victory by Western actors and definition of victory in the country concerned. And the minimum for victory is to break the land bridge, the land bridge between Donbass and Crimea, I would say. I'm sorry, Mark, did you want to come in on this? Well, I just, I, you know, I think that at any uh, moment you'll have particular things which are possible and which are desirable. But I think the definition of victory is obviously something which is totally contingent <laughs> on what the options are. On the 22nd of, uh, you know, in 2022, in February, simply not uh, having Russian troops in Kiev was a, was a victory. If Ukraine joins NATO and the EU, I think that'll be a massive victory. Nobody thought that was possible 10 years ago. And, um, you know, it all depends on what happens uh, at any moment in time, what's a victory and what's a defeat. Um, and I, I do think that that is something which is going to be subject to, to debate and discussion rather than, you know, obviously at a kind of moral level, um, a victory is going to be, uh, you know, reclaiming the last scrap of, of, of territory and going back to the borders of 1991. But most people would say that, you, that Estonia had, had, you know, was victorious, um, you know, but at various different points, you know, it had to live with different realities. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think there's a difference between our kind of legal stance and, and what we're going to uh, legally uh, accept and, and what's possible, and a, a victory obviously has to be something that's that's possible and is judged against kind of counterfactuals at any particular moment. Um, I think I think we're going to I think we slightly disagree here, but we've only got a few minutes left. So can I just tease out one other finding, Jeremy? And and you may have a couple of last questions. Uh, sure, it would also be great, Tim, if you could come in on that intensity of preferences point, which it seemed like you had something to say. Just very briefly. Um, it, it is extraordinary that we have managed to ask these very difficult political questions in a country like China or a country like Russia. And obviously, one has to have some caveats about the, about the results and the element of fear and conformism in what people said. But nonetheless, if we ask them at all, it's remarkable. And what I would say, to, to add to Ivan's point about moods, in other words, what's significant is change over time. It's also, isn't it, correlation with 
other evidence. So what we're seeing in this polling correlates rather closely what we're actually seeing at the UN or in real international relations, and that gives it plausibility. But just to come back to one other finding, which I think is quite striking, and it, it connects to victory defeat in Ukraine, we ask the questions, to what extent, if at all, do you support or oppose your country having access to nuclear weapons? Um, Saudi Arabia, 62%. South Korea, 56%. Four. India, 54%. Four. Turkey, 48%. Four. South Africa, 41%. Four. Um, in other words, you know, one conclusion that countries seem to take from this world of uh, competing and unfaithful great powers uh, in kind of serial polygamy is that if you want to defend yourself, best of all is to have nuclear weapons. And I think it's not implausible to think that the fact that Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in 1994 with security assurances from the United States, UK, and Russia, and then got hammered um, a couple of decades later, um, has probably rather encouraged people in that view and therefore has been a catalyst for, for nuclear proliferation. Yeah, I would, I, uh, to me, almost it's a little bit surprising that uh, so few people want their countries to get nuclear weapons when you look at um, what has happened to the countries that don't have them versus the countries that do. Uh, it's, um, and I think the, uh, an Indian foreign minister once mentioned that that was the main lesson he took from the various Iraq wars. Was it was a good idea to have nuclear weapons. But uh, th this has been incredibly fascinating, and I think there's about a dozen different avenues we could pursue. We maybe, maybe we can do three or four more podcasts on this, Mark, while you're gone. But, but I think uh, we're up, almost out of time now, and there is one thing left to do on, that, on this podcast, and this is our bookshelf section. So uh, we'd like to hear from all of you. What do you recommend to our listeners in terms of a... It doesn't have to be a book, even though it's hard to put a non-book on your bookshelf, but what are you reading or listening to or watching uh, right now? Ivan, why don't we start with you? No, listen, when the crisis starts, you are not reading, you're rereading. <laughs> In a certain way, this is my definition. And I was trying to uh, basically uh, reread now very much certain and just read the biography of uh, Edward Said. I'm very much interested to see to what extent basically Palestinians managed to get in the non-Western imagination the role that the Jews basically has in the European imagination as a kind of an ultimate victim. And this I found kind of quite important to understanding the world in which we're living. Yeah, that is fascinating. Uh, Mark, what's on your bookshelf? Yeah, so I've been trying to uh, understand how some of the big transnational forces which, which we're living through are kind of intersecting with, with geopolitics and with politics. And I've been uh, reading a book on environmental political theory by Steve van der Heyden, which is sort of looking at how this focus on climate change is, is changing the sort of eight big ideas at the heart of, of sort of political theory, ideas like sovereignty and equality and freedom and justice and agency, but above all, progress. And um, I, I think that um, by looking at how some of these kind of forces like you know, the, the climate emergency debates about AI um, and uh, debates about inequality and capitalism uh, um, are changing these kind of basic ideas. I think you, it's another way into some of the discussions we've been talking about now about how people are thinking about themselves and, um, and also their political alignments and the future of their, of their civilizations. 
Uh, okay. Tim, what's on your bookshelf? As well as Sylvie Kaufman's wonderful book, Les Aveugles, which we talked about last time on Mark Leonard's World, when it was still Mark Leonard's World. Those were the days. Those were the days. Um, I, it's always very helpful to read books you strongly disagree with. And I've been reading Sam Moyne's book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times, the thesis of which is that Cold War liberalism gave us neoliberalism and therefore the problems we have today. And I think this thesis is precisely wrong. It is precisely the neglect of the lessons of Cold War liberalism, namely that you have to think about the other half of your society to have a strong welfare state, think about ideological competition from other systems um, that led us into, 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 the, into the hubris of neoliberalism. But, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's nonetheless a very stimulating read um, because it provokes one to fundamental disagreement. Well, in that vein of reading things that you disagree with, which is kind of the only thing I do, I've, I've been reading a book by David Bernhardt, a former Trump administration official, called You Report to Me, Responsibility for the Failing Administrative State, which is, uh, in, as we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, it's a description of how the Trump officials, when they were in power, found that, in their view, a liberal biased deep state prevented them from doing what they wanted to do and what they're going to do about it in the second term. Uh, so I would recommend it for anybody who has problems sleeping at night. It won't improve them, but he'll now have something really good to worry about. Okay. That's all that we have today. Um, if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, hopefully give us a good rating, a five-star rating. If you can give six stars, maybe that will help me replace Mark Leonard and review us on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. We will put a link to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Tim, Ivan, Mark, and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it is goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Maria Faro-Sratz.